Hello and welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast for the week of July 28th. I'm Melissa Davlin. This week, Alex Adams, administrator for the Idaho Division of Financial Management, joins us to discuss Idaho's record-breaking general fund revenues for fiscal year 2021 and what the state might do with the surplus. But first, we know Idahoans ages 18 to 24 make up 11% of Idaho's population, but people in their late teens and 20s account for the plurality of COVID-19 cases so far during the pandemic, and it isn't even close. Right now, one-third of Idahoans in that age group are vaccinated. With the spread of the Delta variant and rapid rise in cases and hospitalizations among unvaccinated people, many parents and educators are eyeing the upcoming school year with some apprehension. Joining me to discuss efforts to get college students vaccinated is Chris Owens, Associated Vice President of Kasiska Division of Health Sciences at Idaho State University in Pocatello. Thanks so much for joining us today. Can you talk to me about ISU's vaccination efforts? Well, yes. Thank you, Melissa. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, yes, Idaho State University has been uh, very much focused on vaccination efforts throughout this pandemic for our campus community, but also I guess I, I, I need to add as well for our larger community as well. Uh, as a part of the Kasiska Division of Health Sciences, I am the Associate Vice President, but I'm also a faculty member in the College of Pharmacy. And uh, I work with uh, many of our clinical, uh, our students in various clinical programs from nursing and physician assistant, uh, pharmacy, uh, and many, many others. And so we have been very much a part of uh, the response to the COVID-19 pandemic since the, the very beginning, recognizing our role as healthcare professionals. And, and using that role also within the campus community, uh, we have been serving to vaccinate uh, our own students and, and provide opportunities as much as possible uh, to make that as convenient for students uh, and for our staff and faculty to receive those vaccinations. So how willing are Bengals to get vaccinated right now? Well, that's a great question. You could say, well, how willing is the average American? How willing is the average Idahoan, right? How how willing? It it varies greatly. It it truly does. And and there are obviously good conversations, uh, even even arguments to be had on different sides of of this issue. However, as, as healthcare professionals, and again, speaking, I think, as the Associate Vice President for Health Sciences, uh, as a public health uh, professional myself, I have degrees in both pharmacy and public health. And, and from that background, I would say that obviously it's something that we are, are promoting. It's something that uh, at every chance we get, we try to encourage uh, laying out the information so that people can make informed decisions. Now, with that information, people have not only our voice that they're listening to, and uh, obviously, uh, like I say, there are differing views on, on whether or not people should, should be vaccinated. So that's a very roundabout way of not answering your question. But it, it, it varies greatly, I guess, is what I would say in terms of uptake. You know, and, and so we're talking about the general student population, but we're also talking about the students that you work with as, you know, who are in nursing programs and pharmacy programs. Is there a difference among those populations uh, when we're talking about willingness? There has actually been a, a very high uptake of, uh, of the vaccine amongst our health professions students. 
Um, we had opportunities even earlier on this year to uh, to be a part of the larger vaccination efforts in our communities, in both our on our Meridian campus and our Pocatello campus. And our students uh, signed right up to actually be a part of the vaccination efforts. So if you're a pharmacy student, a nursing student, a PA student, you are trained and certified in giving vaccinations. We, we give flu shots every year. And even as a part of training, students have that opportunity. And so many of our students uh, jumped on to be able to uh, help with the vaccination effort. And so that is receiving the vaccination themselves and then vaccinating uh, others in the community. So I would say it has been a very high level of uptake in general for our health sciences students. Uh, I think it's also part and parcel to being a healthcare professional. Uh, obviously, you're in a field where you're recognizing what your role is in promoting public health, in benefiting other people as much as possible, in trying to avoid harm as well, recognizing that I don't want to be someone who spreads it potentially to my patients. And so it's, it's been uh, obviously something that has been like contested, but at the same time among health science students, I think that aspect of their professional ethical responsibility to be that uh, source of, of information, of benefit to patients and not uh, unwittingly uh, spreading the virus has, has been a part of, of the very high uptake for uh, health science students in general. You've said high uptake a few times. What What's high uptake? Are we talking 70%, 60%? And do you keep track of it? Well, that's, that, that's, that is how we would be able to put uh, a very specific uh, or be able to answer that question specifically. What we have um, is we have the beginning of this pandemic. We've had what, what's known as an assumption of risk, uh, basically form that Obviously, even before the pandemic, we had similar forms like that. If you're in a health science program, you need to recognize you're going to go out into clinical settings where you might be put at risk of harm, wouldn't be to someone who is not in a health professional setting. Well, those types of conversations now have to increase to include the nature of the COVID-19 pandemic and the nature of uh, vaccines as well and whether or not you choose to be vaccinated is not something that we have been tracking and asking specifically and getting tally and tick marks for all of our students. We encourage it. We say you need to be vaccinated. You should be vaccinated. You ought to be vaccinated. We encourage you to be vaccinated, but we don't require it, nor do we uh, keep specific count of who has been vaccinated and who has not been. You, you can't require it because no. of the governor's executive order. That's exactly right. As a state institution, we cannot require it and we will not be requiring it as a state institution. It is interesting to note though that a number of our different health systems, uh, St. Luke's, St. Al's, others, uh, and many other uh, clinical um, affiliates that we have, they are beginning to require uh, that students and their own workers uh, be vaccinated and so this now has introduced a, a, a new, a new uh, aspect for us to have to deal with in terms of, well, we need to help our students complete the requirements for their clinical education, which means they need to be in these healthcare settings, but we're not the ones requiring that they be vaccinated. It's the different entities that we work with that are requiring them to be vaccinated. So we're, we're needing to kind of work with students just to start to determine are there students who have not been vaccinated? What might those exemptions be? And then let them work that out with those different entities. Now, we as the university will support students in, in, in 
creating that, that documentation that, that's needed, but we're not the ones vetting that. We are not the ones that are requiring it, uh, but it's important to know who will choose not to be vaccinated because it has impact on their, on their clinical education. And so that's the reason why we would need to know that. And so we're starting to gather that data. Again, as a long way around to answer your question, we're getting at who amongst our health science students have been vaccinated and who have not, um, because we're now having to track it more closely for those clinical education purposes. We know that here in the Treasure Valley, where Idaho Public Television is based, St. Luke's, St. Al's, and Primary Health are requiring vaccinations. What are you seeing in Pocatello? Are any uh, hospitals or clinics requiring that students and employees be vaccinated? No, we have not heard uh, requirements uh, to, to, in, to the same degree. Uh, we are hearing, however, and these institutions can uh, have other policies that they put into place that say, well, if, if you choose not to be vaccinated, we, you need to at least disclose that. We need to know it so that then certain patient care settings we don't put you in or we make sure that you uh, have the appropriate protection, an N95 respirator, et cetera, that, that you will need to wear when you're in certain uh, patient care areas and doing certain activities if you choose not to be vaccinated. So there are workarounds that uh, different uh, clinics uh, can choose to implement as well. You have worked with this population, the general student population, for a while now. What kind of messaging seems to work when convincing people who are either vaccine hesitant or just don't have it as a high priority? Well, I think what, what it comes down to in a lot of cases is I think this is a, a population just in general. And again, I keep speaking in generalities because I think you about have to because not everybody views this the same way. But in general, you have a a younger, otherwise healthy, I'm not really thinking that this is something that, that will affect me. It's not really something that I need to worry about. I think there is a, a lot of that just in the age group in general, thinking this is not something that really I need to worry about. They may know people who have gotten COVID who really didn't have much of, of a problem with it. And so they're just going to just, just go with it. Uh, you know what? I don't need to be vaccinated. It's fine. So I think the best way to kind of uh, deal with that or counter that would be with, and we have started this already, with students who have chosen to be vaccinated and tell their story of, well, this is why I chose to be vaccinated. Um, whether it's a health science student or not, I think that direct peer kinds of, uh, of a conversation is, is what can be most, most powerful, where you've got someone who's also in similar circumstances that made a different choice, and they tell you why they did choose to be vaccinated. And maybe help to, uh, to bring to mind other aspects of, of this uh, crisis, the way it's affecting people beyond the population that, that we're in, and maybe the role that we can have to help, to help stem that some. And so that's some of the messaging that we've been using is direct kind of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, kinds, of, kinds of messages. Here's why I chose to be vaccinated. And, and you feel like that's been successful so far? I, I, I think so. I mean, we're, we're still uh, working through it. I mean, one of the big efforts that we have going uh, this summer is with our new student orientation here on campus. We're bringing students to campus at different sessions to orient them and their families. It's a really exciting time to get them registered for fall. During those, we talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. We talk about how it's available here at Bengal Pharmacy right on campus. And for several of the sessions this summer, we've actually had some of our students pharmacists, student nurses, and other volunteers, and the Southeast Idaho Public Health Department 
set up right there nearby in the student union building, just ready and willing to provide vaccinations uh, if, if uh, that's what the students choose to do. We're having this conversation on Tuesday morning as news is coming out that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are going to recommend that even fully vaccinated people wear masks indoors in certain settings, uh, especially in in places with a high risk of spread. I was looking at test positivity rates throughout the state and southwest Idaho, where Pocatello is, had one of the highest test positive test positivity rates last week. Um, Does that put a different edge on the urgency for your vaccination efforts? Well, uh, certainly. And I think uh, Southeast Idaho, um, we actually have campuses, right? We have our Meridian campus. We're here in Pocatello. Um, We're up in Idaho Falls as well. So as as a university, we actually have had since the beginning a a health committee in place with members from from different uh, parts of of the state and from different backgrounds that can uh, help to keep an eye on what's going on everywhere and to provide recommendations to the university, to university administration. We've been a very active part of that uh, throughout the, the response. So yes, we are keeping an eye on this, and especially with the Delta variant. And we have been very, very much in tune with, in step with CDC recommendations uh, throughout. And so when, when they make a recommendation from the CDC, that's something that obviously we take very seriously and uh, we uh, bring to our campus community as, as well. So yes, this, this business with the Delta variant and uh, its increased potential for uh, transmissibility as well as maybe even uh, increased risk of more serious disease, these are things that we have to take very, very seriously. And, and, and it may result in changes to what we do. None have been uh, discussed or are planned at this point in time. Obviously, we, we see what the CDC recommends and, and, we, and we go from there. What are you most worried about going into this fall? Well, I guess for this fall, I think everybody is just wanting it and wishing and hoping that it will be, quote, back normal, like it was pre-2020. And they're prepared to, and, and I totally get it. Again, just me personally, absolutely. I want a perfectly normal fall semester too. I want classes to be the way they, they, they have been. I want the activities to happen the way that, and, and, and we're going to do all we can to make sure that that does happen. But the worry in the back of any healthcare professional, public health official, or anybody's mind is, what if this variant does turn out to be as transmissible, um, as serious as what these early reports seem to indicate, and what might that do to um, what it is that, that we're hoping to have for this fall, those are, are legitimate worries. And, and I just would encourage everyone uh, to, to just stay informed, to, to really see what, what the data is saying, and, and with those recommendations and the backing for those recommendations, I hope that we can all together choose to do the right thing to kind of keep our, our community safe. And, I, and I'm sure that's the approach that the university is going to take as well. All right. Chris Owens, Associate Vice President of Kasiska Division of Health Sciences at Idaho State University in Pocatello. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. 
Idaho's fiscal year 2021 ended on June 30th, and for the first time, the state collected more than $5 billion in general fund revenue during the preceding 12-month period. The revenues also came in higher than anticipated to the tune of about $900 billion. Joining me today to discuss that surplus is Alex Adams, Administrator for the Division of Financial Management. Alex, thanks for joining us. You are calling in from the road right now. You're in Lewiston. Before we talk about budgets, can you let us know how is it in Lewiston? We've been keeping an eye on the fires and the and the air quality, and, and you're there. How is it? Sure. It's uh, certainly a little smoky when you go to the overlook uh, over the city of Lewiston. It's, uh, it's certainly hard to see key features throughout the city. So uh, my heart goes out to, uh, to, to all those who are on the front lines. The Department of Lands is doing a, a tremendous uh, job uh, keeping uh, the fires in check. And I just you know, want to extend my thanks to all of them for their hard works and, and efforts in protecting so many Idahoans. It's certainly something we'll continue to keep an eye on. And we'll talk more about fires in this conversation. But first, I just wanted to get a general overview from you about that general fund report that came out on Monday of this week. Uh, what What's the state of Idaho's finances right now? Well, certainly, uh, you know, you just look at the top lines that you said in your opening, and it's, uh, it's a pretty good report. Uh, grew 24% from fiscal year 20 to fiscal year 21. That would be the single largest increase in uh, the history of the state for which we have records. And uh, as you noted, hitting $5 billion for the first time last year was the first time we hit $4 billion. To see almost a billion dollars of growth year over year is just uh, something that is, uh, you know, defies expectations. And I was telling someone the other day, you know, state fiscal year ends on June 30th. And if you just think a year ago on June 30th, we had scheduled a board of examiners meeting in case we needed to liquidate our rainy day funds to um, balance the budget. This year, we were in such a strong budget position. I was uh, off the grid in Denali National Park on June 30th. That's, uh, uh, that's perhaps how uh, good of a fiscal year we, we were having. But uh, uh, to maybe uh, just put a, a finer uh, point on a, a couple things. As you noted, uh, we've accumulated a surplus of approximately $900 million in, in year-end money. And the governor's uh, already announced uh, some plans for those. He's talked about taking that surplus and investing it in uh, education primarily, but also looking at uh, roads, water infrastructure, and other investments that will have long-range uh, impact. But it uh, certainly goes without saying that uh, partly why uh, we're seeing these strong numbers is for reasons that we can't bank on reliably. Uh, there's been quite a bit of federal dollars that are coursing through the economy and booing the results that we're seeing. And uh, we have to be really careful uh, to ensure that uh, we don't outspend what, uh, what would reliably be coming in ongoing. Well, let's talk a little bit about that federal stimulus money and its impact on Idaho. So this is a different bucket than the the CARES and ARPA money that came directly to the state to spend on these government programs. But citizens of Idaho also received stimulus money, and, and that's factoring into this boost in general fund dollars, right? Yeah. So um, the $5 billion that you referred to, Melissa, um, is basically what we're collecting from income sales and corporate taxes primarily. Then there's a bunch of miscellaneous and profit taxes, but it's primarily income sales and corporate taxes. 
federal funds like CARES and ARPA wouldn't show up in those directly, but they certainly can show up in those dollars indirectly. For example, if an Idahoan got um, a stimulus check from the federal government, if you got your $1,400 stimulus check, many Idahoans went out and bought things with those bikes, uh, remodeled their decks, groceries, other things. So uh, we got a portion of those in sales tax. Uh, similarly, um, we had done return to work bonuses and other things like that that are taxable and might've showed up in income tax. So certainly some of why we saw a strong income tax and sales tax was in part because of the uh, federal funds, but uh, certainly not, uh, not all of the reason. We've uh, seen lots of growth in the state for other reasons. We've seen a lot of people uh, move here to remote work because when some of the tech companies, especially out of California, allowed remote work, Idaho, relatively speaking, uh, was a slightly more affordable place to live and has beautiful outdoors and uh, became an attractive uh, place uh, to, 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 to live and uh, do remote work. Um, just based on how some of our border states were zippered up, especially Oregon and Washington, a lot of those individuals came across the border to, to recreate and, and do some of those things. So a lot of why we saw uh, the record revenue we did uh, is is for some of those reasons, which uh, is... is uh, is why we're trying to play conservative and not outdrive our headlights, so to speak. There's the the surplus, the general fund money coming in higher than anticipated, in addition to just the the record amount of money that the state is seeing. Part of that surplus, though, is because of of the estimate, uh, the the um, forecast on how much money the the state would receive and. You know, last year was an outlier for obvious reasons, but the state pretty consistently comes in or it does that forecast below what we actually receive. How much of that is is a consistent and purposeful lowballing on estimates of general fund revenues? First, I think it's important to know that, you know, forecasting always has uncertainty built into it. And uh our uh, chief economist was always fond of saying forecasting is a lot like driving your car forward using only your rear view mirror. You're using the data that you've seen to date to try to make estimates about what the future will uh, hold. And COVID was really unprecedented. I, I, you know, in many ways, it was like ripping the rear view mirror off and uh, trying to figure out what's going to happen. I mean, if you think last year in April, May, we saw record unemployment and now you know, Idaho has rebounded and we're one of the lowest unemployment states. So, I mean, trying to forecast last year what would be happening at this point in time, I don't think it's reasonable. You know, any reasonable person would think that we would have been able to, to anticipate with certainty what would happen. And frankly, if there's anyone out there that can, I'm sincerely disappointed they didn't apply for our open economic uh, position that uh, we had open last October. But um in general with forecasting, one of the things that's been really important to Governor Little is uh, trying to account for uncertainty. Uh, so Idaho governors uh, have used what they call the Idaho economic model. It was developed under the Andrus administration and governors have generally used that economic model uh, moving forward, adding different data inputs into it. And the Idaho governors have traditionally budgeted to the baseline scenario, which is the most likely forecast scenario to occur. What Governor Little tasked us with doing is uh, running alternate scenarios. So now we present uh, the budget with the baseline scenario, a pessimistic scenario, an optimistic scenario, and we assign probability to each of those. 
and we present those to budget committee and the budget committee ultimately uh, settles on a number. So uh, one thing that uh, you know, Idaho does well that many other states don't is we really do have a collaborative forecasting process. While the governor makes a recommendation to JFAC, they ultimately uh, decide their own revenue figure having taken into account uh, ours what they hear from uh, university economists across the state and also what they hear from uh, businesses and in different industries that are pretty important to the state's economy. So um, in general, I think you're accurate in that uh, revenue collections have exceeded what the forecast is, but I think that's generally just good government. I think in, in general, it's better to be surprised at the end of the year than disappointed at the end of the year because there's nothing worse than at the end of the year having to try to balance a budget uh, in with uh, just weeks to months left in the fiscal year. Usually how spending works in the state is it's front loaded. And the later you get in the fiscal year, the, the more difficult and painful decisions you have to make, which is why it's it's uh, generally better to, to have a little bit of a surprise at the end of the year. Uh, Idaho has been doing it for a couple of years. You probably recall the surplus eliminator years where uh, the surplus at the end of the year was uh, given to transportation projects and uh, and uh, some key infrastructure projects like that. So it's uh, certainly kind of in the DNA of, of uh, the Idaho legislature of budgeting conservatively, living within your means. And if there is a uh, surplus at the end of the year, investing in long range projects like uh, transportation or the building Idaho's future projects that uh, Governor Little let out on this year. You know, conservatives, some conservatives are going to look at this and say this is proof once again that the state is collecting too much in taxes and that it is time for more tax cuts. Uh, others are going to look at it and and say this is proof that the state isn't investing in basic necessities like school infrastructure and roads where you, we know that the governor wants to invest some of this, as you said, in schools and transportation. Um, but philosophically, where is he on that spectrum? Well, first, I think um, one thing to remind uh, your listeners of is the fiscal year that we're talking about where we hit $5 billion ended on June 30th. So there's a new fiscal year that starts July 1. And in this new fiscal year that started, uh, there's a couple laws that... Uh, are, are taking effect. First is uh, Governor Little did fight for record transportation package this year, where we'll be devoting a portion of the sales tax to um, uh, debt service for bonds for major transportation package uh, projects. Uh, second thing that happened this year is we passed uh, under Governor, Little lead, Governor Little's leadership, the largest uh, tax cut in the history of the state, uh, really focused on uh, income taxes. So this new fiscal year, automatically you start off with a reduction of revenue from the income tax cut, and then you're also going to see a reduction of revenue uh, from the sales tax reductions and sale, a portion of sales tax is gonna be sent to roads. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, both of those boxes that uh, you let off with have been checked, a record tax cut and a record uh, transportation package. Nonetheless, uh, we're going to be releasing a new revenue forecast in August that takes into effect uh, all the new data points that have emerged over the past uh, year. And I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say it's more likely than not the revenue forecast is going to come up from what the legislature uh, set the budget at. So um, I think it's fair to say we could take a look at doing both additional investments in education. Education, education is kind of the message I've been getting from uh, Governor Little. Um, been his top priority since he came into office. He's made investments in starting teacher pay, uh, experienced teacher pay, uh, 
the uh, literacy investments and learning loss uh, investments, things like that. And I think uh, it stands to reason you'll see additional education investments in this upcoming budget. Uh, but we've also talked about investments in water infrastructure, uh, state buildings, uh, you know, behavioral health interventions, things like that, even affordable housing. We're, we're, we're talking about quite a few things and the governor will ultimately bring a plan in January that I think it's reasonable to expect we'll have critical investments for the state's future as well as uh, some tax relief. And uh, he's, he said that uh, in recent weeks as he's seen these budget numbers come out. You know, as as we're looking at the forecast, I remember covering not that long ago when we hit three billion in revenues for the first time, and and now we're looking at five billion. Um, looking forward, though, I realize I'm asking you to get that crystal ball out again. How much is this fire season going to impact the what we have banked for the state? Yeah, and again, I'll just reiterate where I started by uh, uh, sincere thanks to the Department of Lands and the firefighters all across the state for the effort that uh, they're they're putting in to keep our uh, community safe. Um, I toured uh, one of the fire complexes last week with the governor and in talking to the fire lead at the Department of Lands, uh, he told me it could be upwards of $80 million this year. And uh, we certainly will make sure that uh, resources will not be an issue to keeping our community safe. And uh, when we talk about these record surpluses, we're in a great position, but there's also an acknowledgement that there's lots of needs. The uh, backfill of the fire suppression fund uh, being chief among those, but uh, uh, it, it's just an estimate at this point in time. Uh, we'll see how this uh, fire season continues to unfold, but uh, we will ensure that uh, the men and women on the front lines have the resources necessary to, to, to be effective and to keep us safe and to keep themselves safe. Right. Alex Adams, Administrator for the Division of Financial Management. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks so much for listening. For updates throughout the week, be sure to follow Idaho Reports on Facebook and Twitter. And for a weekly roundup of political news from the Idaho Reports team, sign up for our Friday newsletter. You'll find that subscription link on our social media feeds. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.